I am Jacob. And I'm Levi. And today we are going into the macroverse for Mick Garris's 1994 episode 3 of The Stand. You are now listening to Into the Macroverse, a comprehensive, all-in deep dive into the Stephen King cinematic universe. We are your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, here to transport you to the multidimensional playground known as Stephen King's Macroverse. Please kick back, put on your favorite pair of noise-canceling headphones, and join us as we journey into what do you think about this episode so far initial reactions on it it's a little messy starting off i will say because we're kind of pushed like a month ahead of where the last episode finished off yeah i I felt like it was very choppy this episode you know it really cut around a lot i don't know if it was the save the runtime but i kind of tuned into this series expecting a nice little road trip section. And they kind of skip it. You know, it was a lot of just, you know, them being like, all right, well, well, here it is. And uh, yeah, so things happen, but don't worry about them. It's like someone was told to show, not tell. And then we're just like, no, I'm not going to show you anything. You're going to have to piece it together yourself because that's good writing. Very ambiguous. Yeah. And I mean, I know that the book was long. I haven't read it, but that book is at least a thousand pages, I think, right? Something along those lines. So there's more than enough source material for this show to be like, hey, I don't need to fill in any of these holes on my own. There was probably plenty of story of all of these characters making their way down to Mother Abigail and so on from there. I feel like as a viewer, we should be able to get that kind of reconnaissance of what happened or at least you know a brief detailing of it yeah but instead we start off with um shoot Stu Stu Redmond that's his name I always forget his name for some reason starts off with yeah good old Stu piecing together a dying person this dying person we don't know who they are they're just some random minute character that we are supposed to feel bad for Although we never really get to figure out who they are, we just jump into some random person being operated on and then dying. What do you think about that? To me, that was really out of the water, nowhere. All of a sudden, bam, you know, we go from seeing these people come in bikes from episode two and Las Vegas for some reason to all of a sudden this man is dying on the floor in the middle of a warehouse in the middle of like a here yeah we don't know even really where it is but like i want to know what happened like and i even had to go back to episode two i scrubbed all the way back to the end of episode two trying to figure out did i fall asleep during something did i miss like an end credit scene i don't know if they did this in the 90s but it was just very cold open very throwing you into the mix Yeah, so right then and there, we're just kind of thrown into immediate confusion, just trying to figure out what's going on. And then they kind of just move on from it, and the story begins again. Now, what goes on from there? 
Well, from here, we see Stu's initial, really, anger of what's going on. And just how, for me, that's I was really stuck on the whole choppiness. Just of the episode as a whole, bouncing, especially with that cold open. It was jarring, and it kind of didn't feel like the rest of the series thus far. It really didn't. We're taken, you know, directly from this scene, and then we're just supposed to be upset over a character we never really met. But on the bright side, Nate, no, I'm sorry, not Nadine, uh, Franny's pregnant. Yeah, um, when that happened, we have no idea how she found out. We don't really know. We don't see a pregnancy test that they stole from they, the Dollar General or anything. Do you think like that, that they just steal pregnancy tests in the apocalypse? Maybe, yeah, who knows? Or maybe she just had it. Maybe uh, Randall Flagg told her in her dreams. Maybe Randall Flagg is the father. Maybe this is Oof. a Carrie moment. <laughs> there's like oh my gosh what's going on but no how about you tell us what's going on with the rest of the uh, episode like you do jacob you take it away you did the best of this sweet well thank you so from here on out we kind of flash forward again back to where mother abigail is and we had just gotten in the last episode to all these bikers just kind of randomly showing up in a big giant what what's the word for like a big like line of cars uh not a convoy it looked like a convoy to me or a traveling herd. I guess you can call it that. Yeah, the convoy shows up with about 60 or so people that we don't really know where they came from. Mm-hmm. They just kind of showed up. I guess they all had the same dreams together about Mother Abigail. And they all kind of start, you know, they walk up, they meet all the new faces, and they all go and are like, oh my god, Mother Abigail, how much we've missed you even though we don't really know you. And they have their moment of hugging and saying hello and all that regular greeting stuff that we've come to know and love. And, and that's we, what also really confused me as well was I, they specifically said we miss you, which leads me to apply. Was there something in between episodes where like they met up but didn't meet up? Did everybody get mixed up on the road trip there? What happened? In my opinion, it almost seems like everyone thinks that they know Mother Abigail because of the dreams. And so maybe that's what it is. Maybe there is a stronger sense of connection to her because of the dreams. But then right. we come across Nadine, who is basically the Antichrist at this point. And Absolutely. She is just not very happy to see Mother Abigail at all. And I believe she's told by Randall Flagg in her dream to kill Mother Abigail, correct? Yeah, she's given a lot of instructions and is clearly led by Flagg. And his initial, you know, real presence over her and the amount of influence it has is astonishing that, you know, why would someone, you know, with this much power just be able to influence her? My question is, how come he didn't just, you know, in a way possess her? It seems like he can do that. Yeah, I think he has the power to. But then again, she was, if I remember correctly, an addict. And so maybe she was a little bit weaker willed. Maybe that was why she was like the prime choice. Because it was Nadine that was the addict, correct? Yeah. And so maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But basically, there is static across the board the second she showed up on the screen. Even the people that she was convoying with seemed a little bit uncomfortable by her presence. She yeah, it of... almost was like she carried that like devilish feel that Randolph carries with him. Yes. You would say that she carried that negative energy, and I guess... Even Mother Abigail, 
I'm surprised she didn't start splashing holy water on Nadine. Oh, she needs some. She really needs some. Oh, yes. And then from there on out, you know, the characters start to reunite. They decide that they're going to build a community together. I don't think I'm flashing forward, right? They get the power on in this little community, and they're all kind of trying to bring something so, together. Yeah, they're trying to, like, make something out of nothing. And yeah. just trying to help each other survive and with this power outage, kind of, you know, bringing everyone together in a sense, but in a weird, how could you say, more helpful kind of way. Yeah, I would say so. And then from there... They have this electrician character that goes and gets the power running throughout this town. Was it Colorado that they were in? Yeah, they're in Colorado. And so I get this whole little town kind of started up. A little little small town, you know what I'm talking about. The ones that we're so used to with Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Here's where we we see a lot more tropes with him. Yes, absolutely. And then we kind of get forward to this city hall slash church-like building. And they kind of come to a vote and decide, hey, we need leadership Leadership here. Let's all vote on who's going to be the leader. And of course, as you'd expect, they elect the main characters. Because, you know, none of the other characters actually matter aside from the ones that we know. Yeah. You know, Stu, Stu always did have that leadership role to me, regardless. But so but, they elect... But backing up a bit, bro... Um. What what do you think about Harold so far and finding out that Franny is pregnant? Um, well, I'm definitely assuming Harold's a little jealous, a little bit mad, because he always has this kind of look of scorn on his face. Like, he's just annoyed. Although his skin cleared up between the last two episodes, I don't know what river water he was using to wash his face during this apocalypse. But he looks better. He's just, for some reason, now meaner. It's almost as though that, like, entitlement he felt towards her really just kind of turned into anger now. I don't know, but either way, I'm glad Harold didn't get the girl. Yeah, thankfully. Although, unfortunately, from here on out, at the city hall meeting, who does he meet? I believe he met Nadine. Yes, our favorite little destroyer of worlds in her own little sense, Nadine, who just likes to stir up things and cause trouble. And they have this kind of weird, almost unexpected chemistry, which I never really got. But then... Maybe they zinged, like, in Hotel Transylvania. I wish I understood that reference. So, essentially, uh, you know, breaking away from the Macverse, a little piece of, you know, pop culture zinging in Hotel Transylvania is when two characters look at each other, and they instantly zing and know each other, have this, like, oh, yes, connection. I'm kind of thinking of the trees from Avatar, unfortunately. Or the, not the trees, the creatures from Avatar <laughs> touching. Yes. Um, I wish I didn't have to think of that because I don't remember anything from that film besides that stupid scene. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, these two almost instantly have like an instant chemistry with each other. Almost love at first sight kind of thing, but not exactly love. Yes. It was just like some... It was almost like they were connected to their own desires because at this point, Harold was kind of mad at Franny because... He doesn't really know how she became pregnant. It just kind of happened. I don't know if it was because of the flash forwards. The dates are kind of hard to keep track of in this in this series. And I'm trying to... Time just gets scuttled in this episode. Yes, and I'm trying to not pay attention to it because it's pretty disorienting. Trying to keep but track of... But how could Franny 
get how could Franny not want a catch like Harold? Exactly, especially with that leather jacket that he's still wearing. Uh. You have to imagine with all the houses they've rummaged through, all the food that they're finding. There wasn't a better looking one? There wasn't a better leather jacket. Or, you know, the thrift stores are, the doors are probably still unlocked. Go in there and find something better or go take yourself to, I don't know, Heaven by Mark Jacobs and get yourself a nice woolen jacket or something just anything besides that atrocity take away from this if you're in the apocalypse later on and you remember our podcast just remember fashion is above all everything you need because you don't want to survive looking terrible you don't want to be a herald if you want to survive you have to dress to the occasion you don't want to stick out but you also don't want to stick out (laughs) (laughs) and he sticks out yeah, uh, he he looked. He was such a just like almost a wannabe greaser. It's just so, so hurtful. Yeah, uh, it, he must think he was one of the outsiders. Oh lord! But Very going crazy. back to the episode, yes. And it's almost like these two characters almost instantly hatch a unspoken plan with each other. Wouldn't you say that's what happens between good old Nadine and Harold? Yes. Once again, we have what I just assumed to be more telepathy. Or just the unspoken rule of skipping over things that are important in the script. I don't know. But they just have this weird connection that it almost seems like it just happened off screen. But they right. just put the wrong things on screen. Like, I wish they could have, you know, spent less time with them on the couch and more time with them just talking. Because that was uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's one thing that I found really funny was that the second they kind of had this connection, and this may be flashing forward just a little bit, he becomes kind of vile. Like, more vile than usual. What do you mean? Well, even the way that he talks to her, I think we're at the point in in this episode now where he's kind of working on the dynamite, because he didn't get elected by the city council. And they kind of... He lost the girl of his dreams. Yes, he didn't get to keep Franny. He is now stuck with Nadine, who just wants, just like Trash Can Man, wants to blow things up. But it's almost like, uh, like how we see a lot of times in the macroverse, this almost perversion of a good character. Yes. You know, corrupting him from what was, you know, I, I guess you can say he was a good soul in the beginning, to a degree even though he just had, you know, essentially the hots for one character. And now, you know, from that kind-hearted soul of, well, I wouldn't say kind-hearted, but, you know, <laughs> that almost good nature of wanting to protect and whatnot, now he's just turned into a more destructive, angry version of himself. And maybe it was Nadine that ignited that spark, but who knows? Maybe because he wanted Franny, he acted like he was a nicer person. And maybe this is him acting more himself. We don't his really true know. Colors. Yes, exactly. His true colors. Because he's a little bit sociopathic. He kind of... Absolutely. Lost after one person. Obsesses over them. And they were kids. Yeah, since they were kids. Which is too long. If you don't have your childhood friend as a partner in like five years... Give up. Move on. Find someone else. <laughs> go, go look through your phone book. 
going to surely have a few of those scattered around the apocalypse. But, so, like, after they get this plan, they're working on dynamite. Essentially, they they come to a plan to just blow up the town. Yeah, and again, that comes out of nowhere, because I don't think these characters really wronged Harold. Until, of course, Stu and Franny kind of start kicking things up a little bit. I mean, his cross, his heart was broken. Poor man. Yeah, but, you know, he he should have just accepted that he wasn't going to have her from the start. <laughs> but with this, we learn about our good friend, Larry. Yes. Now tell us about Larry. So Larry is out here doing his thing, but what gets me is that Larry, although I can't remember really if they focus too much on him in this episode, but Nadine has a plan for Larry. Now... Nadine, our wonderful Randall Flag obsessed drug addict, is has this thought, right? This process yeah. of even though she's this horrible individual, she can escape Randall Flag by sleeping with Larry. I mean, I don't know. I, I've never had that thought in my head. I was like, oh, if some, I'm being mind controlled. That's how I'll break it. And that doesn't work, and maybe that's what leads Randall Flagg to put even more thoughts into Nadine and Harold's head. Because at this point, I'm assuming that Randall Flagg has seen Harold as another object of desire. Because once again, oh, definitely broken person, kind of bad. Definitely not in a gray area. He's definitely a little bit morally, let's just say flawed. He's definitely swinging to one side, whereas before you could see, you know... The, you know, where his character could go both ways. Now he's definitely leaning to one side. Yeah. And so he becomes kind of bad. And I will say the song that they play when they are working on that stick of dynamite, I kind of enjoyed it. The song was called... Let me see if I can pull that up here. It was a disco song called Boogie Fever by The Silvers. And it's catchy, but definitely a little bit too optimistic for Harold. I just, I don't see Harold listening to that song, I will say. A little bit out of character. I think it's a little bit too upbeat. For this. It is for making dynamite. Yeah, you know, you would think he'd be listening to some, some emo metal or something. I was expecting, you know, maybe The Doors. Yeah, that, that seems more right for him. And I don't think most posers tend to go towards the disco genre because Harold's definitely a little bit of a poser with the motorcycle and the leather jacket. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he'd be listening to disco, but he is. And then Nadine comes down, kind of curious, seeing what he's working on. And he shares his plans, but he becomes really kind of vicious and really dismissive to Nadine, even though he just kind of won her over to his side. Why do that? I, you know, I think it was just because in his head, Nadine is not Franny. So yeah. maybe he views her as just an object. I, I think that, and he's more just kind of using her to get his revenge because she wants her own revenge for whatever reasons Randall Flagg made her believe. Because I'm assuming right. there's some sort of mind-altering, memory-changing power that <laughs> Randall Flagg has. And maybe that's why I can't remember what happened halfway through this movie when it just keeps changing over and over. You got the flag disease. Yes, we have, we flash back over 
to Vegas, and Trash Can Man is now all of a sudden a leader. They give him this little funky-looking jacket. And at the same time, Nick and was it Larry and Stu say goodbye to Tom Cullen, who they somehow, for some reason, decided is the person they want to infiltrate the Las Vegas base. Right, which really confused me, because we, we're getting back to this choppy spot in the show, and we go from, you know, seeing these people plan to blow up a town to all of a sudden in Las Vegas, not knowing if we're back in time and forward in time, where we are in time. Trash Can Man suddenly is leading this pack of people. I mean, that part I kind of get, just because... Well, he he definitely has some influence. Yes, he has influence, and, I mean, he was chosen by Flag. But they have Tom Cullen kind of go as a spy, which I think was kind of mean to make him be the one that's going to put his life on the line. Especially, you know, not to sound cruel or anything like that, but he, he, did, he, wasn't a, he was a special needs guy, and they're sending this character who needed support of other people Yes. To be an infiltrator, to not only go in there, figure out the plan, but then come back through all that and then coherently tell them the plan? And they kind of justify it by saying that no one's going to suspect the special needs character of being, like, a spy. But, like, they're still going to send him to travel all these miles by bike and by himself. And... I you know, I kind of I kind of really like Tom. You know, Tom is a character that I, that has grown on me. Me and as well. And I didn't want to say goodbye to him like that. You know? No, and I found it weird that Nick Andros just kind of let it happen too, because exactly that was also out of character because Nick Andros kind of took over as his protector, his guardian, and his friend. Yeah, they were like almost you know two halves of the same coin. You know, yes. they both complement each other really well, and to just, you know, sever that tie. Yeah, I mean, they could have sent Nick Andros with him, or they could have at least had someone go with Tom Cullen. Right. But we flash forward another few hundred miles and a good ten or so days, and he's down at this Vegas headquarter place doing something, some sort of construction work. I don't know what they have the the smaller names. Fort building. Yeah, there we go. They're building a stronghold, if you would. Yeah, headquarters, a base. Town hall level 11. (laughs) But he's over there just kind of trying to mind his own business, doing what he's told, and they're pretty mean to him, just for no reason. Right out the gate. Mm-hmm. Right out the gate, just already bullying him and like making him do the dirty work. And they send him into the office, and he hears some noises. He hears one of Trash Can Man's wonderful noises. And he looks over, and they're working on a giant fighter jet. Which is insane, first of all, that they just have two people working on this giant aircraft. I don't know when aerial combat became involved in this. My question throughout this was, where did they find someone with the know-how to make this? Because this takes precise engineering. I'm sure you can read a book, which I'm sure is around, especially in Las Vegas. But to find someone who can, you know, you need someone, you can follow the instructions, but doesn't mean you're going to get the right calibrations. 
But of course, that's where Randall Flagg comes in, because him, with his seemingly infinite knowledge of this universe and these people, I guess is able to find some guy with a hankering for explosives and then some other random character we don't really meet. And I guess the two of them make up eight years of engineering school. If you can build a bomb, you can build a plane. I guess so. I guess if you can blow up oil reserves, you can suddenly start to make your own. Apparently, according to a flag, if you can make a Molotov, you can make a plane. One good, yeah, exactly. One good thing, though, is that I guess the whole part of the fighter jets kind of makes sense now why they had Trash Can Man destroying all of these fuel reserves. Mm -hmm. Because they just don't want competition. But who on Earth, out of these remaining cast, would know how to build their own jet? I, I don't know. That one got me. But then what happens next? So from there, things are still a little bit mixed up. But they're kind of having their own little party down at, at their home. And they're all kind of trying to figure out what to do. And obviously Harold and Nadine are doing their own thing. But everyone else is kind of having a good time getting to know each other. You know, they're being a civilization. They're doing what The Walking Dead should have done. Where people are actually, like, seen enjoying themselves and contributing to a society. And doing all these different things. But it just feels like something's wrong. Yeah, very off-putting. Even for the characters who don't know what's happening, there's energy that something's wrong. Of course, we as the audience know that after they finish this bomb, Harold sneaks into the house where all this is happening later on and plants a bomb in the cabinet. The pantry, I guess, or the closet. Just yeah. the box. It's, 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 yeah. And then I'm trying to remember exactly how they found out that it was in there. I think they all got like a vision at the same time. They all heard something telepathically indicating something is terribly wrong. And every, everyone's kind of panicking. They're like, oh shoot, we have very limited time before something bad happens. And Nick Andros immediately runs over to the cabinet or the closet and very conveniently finds the very bomb that we wanted to not have go off. And, you know, and Nick Andros, as we both agreed, is our favorite character in this entire series, correct? Yes. Because, you know, just a genuinely good soul in a very, very bad world. And for some reason, they decide to kill off one of the most important characters in this series. And he died in the... uh, It's such a cowardly way to... He had to be killed off by a bomb of all things, but at least he was trying to save people. And, ah, my heart. So. A moment of silence for me. Yeah. Moment of silence, please. Moment of silence. Rest in peace. (laughs) Goodbye, Nick. Yes. But also at this moment was when Mother Abigail, who I guess disappeared randomly a few minutes before that, comes she was having back, visions. Yes, panicking and looks like she's aged another 20 years. Looks like she went from looking 86 to looking how old she actually is, 106. And I don't know, maybe her barricade of immunity to whatever is happening in this world just disappeared when she went in those woods. But she comes back very weak. And after this explosion and all this chaos, 
she dies. So we lose two very central characters at the same time for different reasons. Yeah, here we lost, you know, pivotal Nick, only to be, you know, have our main, almost one of the main protagonists of the series, someone who's been there really from the beginning as well, and brought all these people together, just die. Yes. Mother Abigail. See, I, I almost speculate if maybe her purpose was just to get them together, and maybe this involved some sort of fate where Nick was meant to die because he was too good, and Mother Abigail was just too influential and just kind of passed on the torch. But still, very abrupt, very out of nowhere, I guess you would say. Choppy. Choppy, like we said. Very choppy. This episode was definitely... It, it was something. I still enjoyed it. But these constant holes... It's disappointing. Because I definitely wanted more. And we've tried to not really touch into the books too much. But this one really makes me want to. Because it feels like we've been missing so much. It, it feels very just out there. You know, it feels like they were really trying to cover way too much without explaining really everything that was going on within it. Yeah. And I mean, it was four hour and a half long episodes for a very, very long book. And so maybe they could have, you know, pushed out the pacing a little bit because I'll be honest with you, I was on board all episodes. It never felt too long to me because even when it was dragging, it was so enjoyable because the characters had so much room to introduce themselves and to develop and to keep growing. But we don't really get to experience that. We A lot of these changes, a lot of these character progressions are off screen. But for what it's worth, we saw that entire, you know, Mother Abigail basically warns everybody coming out of Randall Flagg. Yes. That he is coming. Yes. And they warn that he is this t- horrific man full of un, you know, an unparalleled amount of evil. Yes, and oh my god, his power just keeps growing. There's a really cool scene where he turns an item in his hand. Uh, what was that item again? I believe it was the lighter. Yes, he turns a really cool Zippo lighter. The original cotton ones, you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. You got to fill it with lighter fluid and flick it. The ones that everyone kind of romanticized and the one that I have this day. And turns it into a necklace. What does that necklace symbolize? The audience is given absolutely no clue, but I assume it's some sort of entity of protection, possibly, bestowed upon people that that Randall Flagg sees as useful and vital to his operation. Yeah, it seems like it's almost like a a key almost to him. Yeah. But in the last 30 minutes of the show is when we really, things kind of pick up a bit. Yes. You know, we get explosions, and we get these zombie creatures, would you say? Yeah, I I think you would say that. And of course, a lot of crows. There are a lot of crows in this episode. Thus meaning Randall Flagg is watching. Yes, always, at every moment. And it definitely... Always watching, Mr. Wazowski. Thank you for that. We can always count on your very unexpected movie lines to pop up. It's what we do. 
Macroverse Spin. We connect to other universes. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week when we connect Monsters, Inc. to Pennywise's sewers. <laughs> you had to scare kids. <laughs> the original scare tactic was that yellow snow cone. <laughs> it started off as a joke. It <laughs> into something much worse. But yeah, we do get a glimpse of these creatures that come seemingly from nowhere again. Yeah, very much from nowhere. And that is a very common trend. It's just things kind of just popping into this universe. And so how how did how did we end this episode of season I'm sorry, of this of the stand? How did it end? Like how did you feel about the ending of episode three? Um, very mad at Harold because Harold and Nadine just took off just like that, just disappeared. And these characters are all very disheartened. I would even say at this point, they're probably a little bit more scared than they have been. Like, all of that nice, hopeful optimism, we're going to save the world type stuff, just smushed. Because they lose two scattered. central people in their operation, just wiped out. Two of their leaders, done for. Uh and then, and then that's really kind of where we end the episode, right? It's just them leaving? I think so, yeah. Um, like we said, it's so choppy, it's hard for us to remember the sequence of events, even after having just watched it. Because it really is just all over the place. It's very abrupt, very choppy episode. And you know what? Let's talk about the characters now. Okay, yeah. Oh, so, well, look, one thing, actually. At the oh, end, yeah? you have that kind of reuniting moment where they all hug each other as Mother Abigail passes away. Um, Stu and Franny have a very romantic on-screen kiss and kind of an uplifting morale booster for their entire operation as they move forward in their quest. But Randall's coming. Randall is coming, yes, and he is not not something you want to reckon with, especially when you lose I don't think he's very happy either. No, no, no. They're making too much progress for him to be feeling very at peace with his operation. Because they definitely threatened Randall Flagg. I don't think Randall Flagg was planning on just brutally murdering some people like that. It's not beyond him. But I don't think he wanted to do that until he realized how much Mother Abigail was doing. Yeah. We'll save that when we dive deep into the characters with our, as you know, character analysis for this episode. Yes. We are the Macroverse Maniacs, diving deep now into our character analysis. Alright, so now that we're back, let's talk about the characters of this episode. So, we're gonna, I think we should definitely start this off with one of the biggest twists of the series so far, and that's Harold. Yes. Um, such, such an interesting transgression in his character because he comes off kind of soft. He goes from poetry to blowing people up. Yeah, a little cowardly, weak poet, scared of, scared of Stu, no offense to poets, scared of Stu Redman and intimidated by people taking what's not technically his. And he just suddenly kind of breaks bad and just 
you know, besides complete 180 from what we're used to. And I, and it's almost like we predicted that we did say that maybe he would turn because of it when we were talking about the stand episode one. Yes, we did say that he seemed like he would get in the way, if I remember correctly. Of something. Yeah, we, I believe I mentioned in episode one, uh, the fans can check to see if I'm right. But I did say I feel like maybe if he doesn't get her, he's going to turn on people or maybe he is going to, you know, be bad. And I, the, my suspicions came true. They were confirmed. Yeah, this is just Harold proving why we all hated him from the start. So we don't feel uh, quite like we don't feel like quite as judgmental a-holes as we thought we were. But it's just the fact that 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 jacket, oh, that hair, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, even when they kind of give him, like, a little bit of a glow up in this season, still sucks. Just horrible across the board. And there's nothing about him that you want to look at on screen. But we can talk about that jacket for the next hour and a half if we wanted to. There could definitely be a whole Macroverse episode about the atrocious fashion of Harold. And how that should be its own antagonist. Yes. I just wish we had an alternative ending where what they blow up and said is that stupid jacket. (laughs) The the whole character arc just revolved around this horrific jacket with studs that don't need to be there. Yes. But it was interesting really to see how, you know, he went from, you know, real brooding over Franny, upset, to this total 180 change to becoming almost a murdering psychopath all because of one character that being nadine and we saw her character change a lot from episode two yeah she's she's flourished she's found someone she's happiness she's happy with she finds out that she has a child on the way which i don't know if i'd be too happy about in the state of this world i think you're talking about franny not nadine Oh, sorry. Yes, I am. My apologies. Yeah. But we can go on about Franny. Yeah, she totally... I, it kind yeah. of bothers me that she's... Her character kind of just revolves around Stu. Yeah. Uh, it kind of minimizes her role in this episode. It really did, and, and I wanted to see more of her. You know, maybe her step up, maybe her confront Harold. But we don't get that. We get this uh, more... real simpy character for Stu. Yes. And, of course, Stu is just what you'd expect. He's able to kind of swoop Franny off her feet. And, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. I think he deserves... I think they deserve each other, at least. It's one of the few... He needed, he needed a break. Yeah. And, and so that... I, it was interesting to see Stu's character transformation as well, from being, you know, this loner, angry guy over what happened, to now this leader. But he always yes. had that leader potential, is what we agreed on. Yeah, we did agree on that, that he did seem like he would be one of the big three. Unfortunately, we were proven right because one of the big three is now dead. Uh, poor Nick Andrews. He he was always the optimist. And like we said, we felt like he would make that sacrifice play, that he's willing to put himself before others, and he did. He did, and not in a way we were expecting. In fact, the whole situation could have been avoided if they all just decided... Let's run away from this building as fast as we can. But instead, we had a very dramatic moment where he lurks, lurks, God, lurks in to the closet, discovers the bomb, and then lets out a muffled noise before he is blown up, along with 20 other people that managed to survive but were still very injured. 
but at the end, Nick was doing what Nick does best, and that's just care for others. Yes, he always puts everyone else before him. Very much a stand-up guy, and it is unfortunate to see such a strong character, and probably one of the main reasons we've wanted to watch this far, just fade away. And I don't know what they're uh, going to do after that. I don't know how that crew could possibly recover from losing someone like Nick. It, it was It's detrimental to me. I cried when I saw it, just a little bit. Oh, did you really? I let out a tear. Even after I accidentally spoiled it for you? Yeah, yeah, I let out a tear. As soon as I read that, I I was hoping that you were wrong, but you weren't. I wish I was, too, trust me. It very much caught me by surprise, and it was actually one of the, like, many twists I didn't really see coming in this episode. Speaking of twists... We got a cameo this episode of the man who started this series, in a way. Started the whole thoughts of the Macroverse, and you're right, that is Stephen King himself. Cleaning up bodies, being a trucker. Yeah, being a trucker. And he, it's funny looking at old pictures of Stephen King and old footage of Stephen King, because he looks young. I don't even think I realized that it was him. Oh yeah, and it's 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 crazy to see he's got a cameo in a lot of different you know movies and episodes. Now that I'm really paying more attention to you know him, because I didn't realize that he was in a lot of things. Like for example, he did have a huge part in the movie that he helped write, Peep Show. Yeah, and I think that is a good sign for a lot of these series to show that he was at least on the set. Because I'm sure for most of these films, he's probably the the script supervisor. He must be. He must be in charge of some input on how yeah. it connects. From what I remember, he did have a lot of say in a lot of his movies, but you know, certain ones that dragged it out, he didn't have as much to do with it. But he wasn't pushed to the side like Clive Barker. Yeah. But still, very cool cameo that I didn't realize until after we were preparing for this. Oh, yeah, but you know what? It was always good to see Stephen King himself. Hail to the king. Yes, hail to the king. And now, let's talk about Tom for a minute. What a guy. What a guy. He really does put himself on the line for other people. He's just like his, I'm going to say, like, you know, his other half, Nick. I think it's fair to call him his other half, for sure. Yeah. No, that brotherly bond they have was just... Just right off the bat, just like this instant connection. And it didn't feel forced. It really did feel natural. Like, that's how it would go. Exactly. Who And then he almost, you know, even though they chose him, in a way volunteered himself to be put in one of the most dangerous positions of all time and essentially thrown right in the crosshairs of Randall. Yes. But what I find kind of surprising is the fact that we thought Tom Cullen was the one that would be more likely to be hurt or killed in this scenario. But instead, they are killed in the most safe place possible home, or at least their temporary home. You would not have thought that Nick Andros would have been more susceptible than Tom Cullen, who was right on the front lines. And as well as that, that did bring up some questions. Did um, Randall Flagg not know that Tom Cullen was coming? I don't think he really did because Tom Cullen, you know, I think Randall Flagg saw him as someone who is special needs and not a threat. And I think it was a really great play to put him out there because he is someone that Randall, I don't think, would really see as a threat. 
Yeah, but he did have those dreams, right? Or did he not? I don't believe he did. So maybe he just like slipped the radar. Maybe maybe Tom Cullen wasn't supposed to be a part of a part of this I would you I wouldn't call them losers club because like Stu and Larry are kind of definitely the survivor like, group like the survivor club. Maybe yeah. he was just like, you know, the one that slipped through and because of that, I think that does give him an edge over Randall. It does. Yeah, it almost seems like he is kind of flying below the radar like he actually infiltrated the base. And I will say I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't get to see my second favorite character aside from Randall because I am a big Randall f- uh, fan as you know I always love the villains. Fair. And what a good villain to choose. Yes, but not much from Larry this episode. Not much at all. He is definitely he was very backburner this episode. Kind of hurt me a bit, you know. I do like Larry as a character. Yeah, and, and he is no benchwarmer. Absolutely not. He's he's definitely always on the front line trying to do something. He's always trying to be, not steal the limelight, but always help as much as he can in his own ways. And is willing to take on that leadership role, much like Stu. But he was really put on the back burner this episode. Because, you know, all that really revolved around Larry was Nadine wanting to sleep with him. And yeah. figuring out that that didn't work. It didn't. And so we don't hear much from Larry after that. That kind of upset me, but it bummed me out. Because I really just want to know how this community is going to handle this very traumatic event, even more traumatic than the apocalypse itself. Just a sudden explosion, because they all seem to be handling this whole everyone's dead except for us dynamic pretty well. But not this time. And I think that'd be terrifying in, in any regard, because let's say that, you know, something did happen like that. These are the last people on Earth or, you know, what we perceive to be the last people alive on Earth. Only for their numbers to get dwindled even more. Yeah. So if, if I was in that position, I'd be panicking, wondering, all right, we only got so many people now. Who did we lose? What skills did we lose? Because I'm sure people had certain skills in doing something. And exactly. what can we do to make up for that? Did anyone know them? What we you know? How do we move on? Yeah. What What is next? Like, I find it hard to believe that this next and final episode is really going to be the final episode. The way it's moving and how choppy it is, I feel like I'm going to be left with much more questions than answers. And with that, let's talk about how this. Well, you know, we forgot the trash can man. We did forget the trash can man. Trash Can Man and Rat Man. Trash Can Man and Rat Man, yeah. Uh, Rat Man is prisonoid, correct? Or no? Yep, yeah, he's a prison yeah. guy. Sorry, so many characters. It's just constant names going in and out of my head. But let me tell you, these names are cemented now. <laughs> but Trash Can Man, you saw his character develop a little bit. You know, he's not just blowing random things up. He actually has some influence now. Yeah, and it's like, they, they find him to be a little bit crazy. But it's like almost endearing to this other crew of people under Randall Flagg. And it's kind of interesting how Randall Flagg lets him have that. Yeah, hold on. One minute, buddy. You have been listening to Into the Macroverse with your hosts, Levi Hill and Jacob Willett. Did you know that you can access our podcast anywhere, not just where you're currently listening from right now? 
during this quick little break, head over to rss.com slash podcast slash into the macroverse to access the central hub for all things into the macroverse. You can listen directly from the RSS website, share the link with your friends, or click on the listen tab to see everywhere that our podcast is available for your streaming pleasure. We upload on a bi-weekly schedule every other Friday, and you're certainly not going to want to miss what's coming next. You can also follow us on Instagram at intothemacroverse underscore to keep up with our socials, find out in advance what our next episode is going to be about, and become a part of the Into the Macroverse community. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. about that i had a snake epidemic a snake epidemic tell me about that Where snake was uh, in the dog in the dog oh. cage oh what type of snake uh rattlesnake oh dear god oh yeah let's talk about flag let's talk about flag um, what a guy what a guy and he's very like charismatic and i think the actor just sells it too well that he's just like full he's of. He's like, definitely excited to be flagged. Oh yes, he he loves his job. He now, loves being on different places on different reviews. I've read other ways that a lot of people really didn't like this guy's portrayal of Flag, but personally, I think the actor did a phenomenal job. As the people that don't read a lot of Stephen King books, I like the way Randall Flag is portrayed. Do not hate us because let's say. For real. The actor is it, doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Jamie Sheridan outdid himself. And it's really evident to see, you know, he's much more evil in this episode. Yes. And he's like, but at the same time, he's like so enthralling on the screen that it's like, I hate this guy, but I don't want to stop seeing his face. It's like a reverse Harold, where Harold has all the bad characteristics and becomes a bad guy. Randall Flagg is all the also bad characteristics, but you love him at the same time. We love to hate him. Yes, we love to hate him, but we hate to love him at the same time. And it's just, he, he just commands the screen whenever he comes on. And I think that, you know, this episode really did entail that this guy is a very bad dude with a bad threat. Yes. And he's coming in, he essentially, in a way, kills Mother Abigail. Almost. We we assume that it had to do something with Randall Flagg. Yeah. She loses almost her gift to see, and I guess that's kind of her end. But she makes sure she warns everybody, Flag is coming. Yes. Now, I think I was reading something about, like, she lost her faith during those last few moments when she disappeared into the woods. And I think yep. maybe that, like, kind of got rid of her cloak of invincibility. Because in the previous episodes, when she's on that porch with her little banjo and all of her little prayers and hymns and stuff, she's okay. She bleeds a little bit from her hands, but she's also 106. Like, what else is new? But in this episode, we see that Randall Flagg is able to really get anybody. Yeah. And that, that's horrifying in the sense that this guy is a controlling, you know, evidently, Sin City, Las Vegas. Yes, which makes sense aptly titled and now 
Mother Abigail is dead. Almost the an angel, almost if you would, dead because of flag. Yes, and it's crazy because I we all kind of knew that Mother Abigail was gonna die one way or another. I'm sure you thought that as well, right? Oh yeah, like it oh, was yeah. obvious, but the way that it happened was a little bit hard for me to understand because again she disappears and there's no explanation and none i'm okay with a film or a show that doesn't want to explain things initially like there are some times where you can read between the lies the lines and assume things for yourself but here we're just kind of grasping at straws but we have to assume that randall flag did something to her that kind of got rid of her immortality because in my eyes with her telepathy and her other powers that we don't quite see but assume she has she's kind of immortal she is a survivor and something happens out there and she just suddenly loses whatever is keeping her alive her life force yeah so let's talk about how now that we talked about our characters let's move on to how this affects the macro We've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. Okay, so a very obvious proponent for how strong this macroverse is is just the fact that Randall Flagg is basically everywhere at the same time. This initial episode, because of how many crows and everything is and the amount of influence it has, really cements Randall Flagg as being everywhere, seeing everything. Yeah, can we get a crow count? Maybe not. Maybe oh, jeez. <laughs> Easily over 10. Over 10. Yeah, definitely. There were at least 10 crows. That's a lot of places for one man, I say man in quotations, to be. He's working, like, overtime constantly. But we did... Man has no show. quit. Yes. The dynamite part where we just kind of get this idea that Randall Flagg led Harold to believe that Dynamite was the direction that things wanted to go. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, yes. There was no indication before that Harold knew anything about electronics or any had any interest in Dynamite. And then all of a sudden, he just picks up this sudden urge to pick up a bomb-making book and just start creating chaos. Speaking and, of chaos, did you know that the actor who played Harold, Corin Nimick, also played Ted Bundy? No, but I'm not surprised. Harold's a little yeah. bit esque in my own opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely kind of had that feel with Franny. But yeah, he did grow up later on to play uh, Bundy and uh, was in some other little horror movies. Uh, played a couple serial killers. You know, generally was a bad guy, but by far 
I think the highlight of his career was both this show and Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Okay. Interesting. Love. We can always count on you to throw in some of those references that I'm going to have a very hard time getting, but I hope some of you out there do get that. Yeah, so we saw that, you know, as as this pertains to the macroverse as a whole, I think it's kind of interesting that Randall Flagg was able to control people and use explosions to an extent. Because explosions like that just kind of lead me back to, you know, Carrie and other movies. Firestarter. That kind of have to deal with that, yeah. Fire being a main proponent. So that was an ear-splitting fire you just... Oh, I didn't mean to. My ear. So I just wanted to let that flag come out, you know? Yes. No, totally get it. But yeah, that proponent of fire in itself is kind of, you know, interesting when we look about it in terms of the macroverse because I'm like, all right, maybe maybe he is really everywhere. Yes. Maybe and... he is behind the scenes in almost everything. Yeah, and fire is, in my eyes, irreversible chaos. And thus far, that's everything that happens throughout all these Stephen King films is irreversible chaos. The only thing keeping this irreversible chaos from spreading is the idea that the government is covering up these ideas, but also the belief that this is multiple different universes all experiencing the same chaos at different times. Yeah, and it's kind of almost been proven within the macroverse as well that sometimes, or in most cases, these universes are in the same yes. a lot of the lines are blurred but they are and so it's hard to keep a linear chronology of when these things are happening because it can be like oh yeah it's 1960 and something's happening but at the same time 1960 in the same month something can be happening in another film or in another part of the stephen king universe exactly but that leads me to boast this question before we finish off this episode what is Randall Flagg? Like, what, you know, we've already proposed the, the question of what are his, you know, true intentions or what's his purpose. My question, which I think will be answered the next episode that I want to do with you, what's his final form? That is something I've wanted to know for a long time because we know he's more powerful than Pennywise. And so I have <laughs> to imagine he's something a little bit bigger than a giant crab maybe even bigger than a giant lobster. Because to me, as a common trope within a lot of the macroverse and Stephen King films, as we noticed, is there is a final form to most creatures and entities in, you know, this macroverse. Yeah. So what's his? Um, see. And what happens when it's released? Yes. What happens? And it's intimidating to imagine what, is supposed to take place in this next episode and what he's going to do to all of these survivors. And that leads me to leave another question, you know, final thoughts would be, is Randall Flagg serving somebody? See, it almost feels like he's following someone else's plans, but at the same time, he just seems... My, my, My question is, is like, he almost has this plan. He has a plan set out for him. But... It feels like he's doing this very calculated, almost as though he's being given orders to do. So who's pulling the cards? Who's who's really behind flag? Do you have some speculation there to throw out? I don't. I I wish I could say I did, 
But maybe there's a darker entity within the macroverse that causes these universes to have some type of peril. Maybe with how Randall Fly acts, or with how Pennywise acts, and with how much we can see that their influence stretches within the macroverse, maybe there is somebody overseeing it all. Yeah, because I guess you can also see Pennywise and Randall Flagg, Robert Gray and Randall Flagg, as two heads of the same coin. Much like we saw Tom and Nick. Yes. Both are equally as conniving, both are equally as cruel, and both have ill intentions. But maybe they're out to serve a deeper purpose. Yes. And that is the question we are going to leave you with. What is the true purpose of Randall Flagg, and is there something above him leading him, telling him what to do, how to cause chaos? Because it's hard to imagine Randall Flagg serving someone else, but as you may know, within the macroverse, nothing is ever out of the question. So until next time, always keep questioning. Keep Look questioning. for the subtle details. And Don't trust that howl. And like my co-host said, Read between the lines. Because you kind of have to if you want to get far in determining the macroverse. You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett. And this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.